Athletic competition has been a part of society for a long, long time. For example, the ancient Olympic Games began all the way back in 776 B.C. That's almost 3,000 years ago. Many of the Olympic events are individual competitions, although there are a number of team sports. When it comes to team sports, the key to victory is not merely having good players or good team members. Strategy is also important. Therefore, good coaches are just as important as good players. A good coach knows how to get the most out of his players and how to take advantage of any weaknesses on the opposing team. A good coach knows how to develop an effective game plan and how to give his own players a formula for victory. It's not enough for a coach to say, team, go out there and do your best. Give it your best effort. A good coach needs to outline a plan for winning. There's a sense in which the writers of the New Testament were coaches. They were actually spiritual shepherds, but they functioned a lot like coaches in that they sought to encourage the people who were under their watch, and they sought to set forth a formula for victory. That's exactly what the Apostle Peter does near the end of his first letter. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we are nearing the end of our trek through this treasured letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, please follow along as I read verses 5 through 9. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. As you can see for yourself, this is near the end of Peter's inspired letter. It is a letter that is filled with instruction and encouragement on the Christian life, and especially for those who are suffering in some way. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, right at the beginning of his letter, Peter said that his readers were being grieved by various trials. That is a reminder to us that trials in life can take many forms, various trials. It could be sickness, Financial difficulty, loss of some kind, difficult relationships, disappointment, or many, many other things. Life is full of various trials. And Peter has reminded his readers and us that trials have a divine purpose. It is consoling to know that God's people are never needlessly afflicted. We are never needlessly afflicted. Or another way to say it would be to say that God doesn't waste our hurts. He doesn't waste our pain. God brings good out of our trials. However, 
that doesn't mean that they are easy. It doesn't mean that trials are trivial. Sometimes they are merely a hassle, and other times they are extremely painful. The word that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 6 means to be sad, to be sorrowful, distressed, to grieve, and even to weep. Life's hurts aren't just superficial. Sometimes they are very, very deep. That is why Peter has addressed this subject at length in his letter. Before he closes, he wants to give some final words of encouragement and lay out a battle plan that is a formula for victory in the Christian life. You see, beloved, we are in a war. Please hear this. If you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you are in a war. You are in a war whether you realize it or not. You are in in a war even if you don't take it seriously. You are in a war even if you are oblivious to it. You and I are in a war. And let me tell you something. The enemy of your soul knows that this is a war even if you don't. Satan is actively involved in seeking to destroy your and my walk with God. He wants to render us ineffective. He wants to render us useless. He wants to defeat us to get any foothold in our lives that he can. Every one of the New Testament writers were aware of this fact. Every one. For instance, James 4, 7 tells us to resist the devil. We don't go after Satan, beloved. He pursues us. Our job is to stand against him. This is a predominant theme throughout the New Testament. Satan is real. Demons are real. Our battle is real. Jesus recognized the reality of our battle. In Matthew 6, he taught his disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one. In fact, that's the final request in that model prayer that Jesus gave to us to pray. Deliver us from the evil one. In Luke 22, Jesus prayed for Peter because Jesus told him that, told Peter that Satan was after his faith. In John 17, 15, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep his disciples from the evil one. Those are just a few examples that illustrate the fact that Jesus knows our war is real. And beloved, it is real whether we ever wake up and realize it or not. A war doesn't go away by closing our eyes. A war doesn't go away by ignoring it. The war has to be fought. The New Testament often uses this kind of terminology to stress to us the importance of realizing that we are in a real battle. For example, back up with me for just a few minutes to Ephesians chapter 6. Before we look at our text here in 1 Peter 5, go back to the left Galatians and Ephesians. After Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 6. As Paul closed out his letter to the believers in Ephesus, he said to them in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might. There's a double emphasis there in that verse. We're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We are in Christ, the New Testament tells us. We are joined to or united to Christ. We are one with him. His life is our life. His power is our power. So we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's verse 10. The natural question arises, how? How can we be strong in the Lord? Verse 11 answers that. It says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemings of the devil. This verse answers the question for us, how how can we be strong in the Lord? We're strong in the Lord when we put on the whole armor of God. The strength is the Lord's, but we have to tap into it by putting on the armor of God. If a Christian lives a lethargic, indifferent, stagnated Christian life, it's not God's fault. The resource is available. So all we have to do is appropriate it in life. Tap into it. Let me give this illustration I've used in the past. This this is sort of like power steering in a vehicle. When you turn the wheel... That activates the mechanism on your power steering and you're able to turn your tires. The Christian life works in a very similar way. The power is available. The power is there. The power is ready. But we don't just sit back and expect it to happen alone. We don't expect it to happen for us. We're not passive. We don't become spiritually strong by being passive. The strength is the Lord's. But it's our responsibility to tap into it by putting on the armor that God has so graciously provided. But the prevailing attitude today among many Christians is, hey, hey, why get so worked up over this issue? Why take this so seriously? Why so much intensity? Verse 11 tells us why. The end of verse 11 says, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the schemings of the devil. This word wiles or schemes here in verse 11 is the Greek word methodias from which we get our English word methods. Satan has methods. Many, many methods. If he can't get us with one, he'll use a different one. And that's the way it is. There are, there are things in, in, in my life, areas of vulnerability that you don't have. If I shared with them, shared them with you, you might say, I can't even relate to that. But there are areas of vulnerability in your life that I can't relate to. I, I don't struggle with that. It's, we're, we're all different. Satan knows that. He has methods. Lots of methods. This is a reminder to us that our enemy is real, and he has time-tested methods to debilitate us, to defeat us, to paralyze us. So understand, beloved, our enemy is not just an idea. Our enemy is not just a concept. He is a person. In Scripture, he is called the deceiver, the tempter, the adversary, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. He is Lucifer. He is Satan, the devil, the evil one, the old serpent, the great dragon, the destroyer, the lion. And he's not just called those names for fun. He is a subtle, 
crafty, brilliant schemer whose goal is to destroy your spiritual life and mine, to neutralize us, to do whatever he can to get as much progress in our lives as possible. Scripture tells us he promotes murder and lies. He promotes sin and rebellion. He casts doubt on the character and the word of God. Can you really trust what God's word says? I mean, it's a pretty ancient book. Can you really believe this? That's the way he works. He casts doubt on the character of God. Can you really trust God? He's pretty mean sometimes. He doesn't seem to care. He has used those tactics literally for thousands of years. He's had thousands of years of experience at his trade. So he's a formidable foe. And one of his most successful methods in 21st century America is to lull Christians to sleep. He uses our prosperity and relative life of ease to cause us to become lethargic and apathetic and make us forget that there's even a battle going on. He seeks to destroy us, or if not destroy us, neutralize us, or weaken us with complacency. With this method, Satan is subtly, imperceptibly snuffing out the spiritual lives of literally thousands of Christians today. And the saddest part about it is that many don't even realize it. Most are willingly sitting down or reclining, even though in verse 11 the Lord says, Stand! Stand! It's amazing how much we cooperate without ever realizing that we're in a battle. So verse 12 emphasizes the point. Verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Elsewhere in the New Testament, those terms, principalities, powers, rulers, etc., are used to refer to spirit beings. This is a life and death struggle we are in spiritually. We not only have Satan to contend with, but according to this verse, we also have all of his hosts. Satan has his demonic hosts cooperating with him. And their primary duty is to promote Satan's program and Satan's activity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but that is one of the reasons why Satan is so effective. He's not omnipotent. That is, he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at the same time. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He is a creature. And he has the limitations of a creature. He can't be everywhere doing everything all at the same time. But, But his presence, his power, and his knowledge are greatly extended through his demons. That's why Satan's influence can be felt in many places at the same time around the world. Here, anywhere, Russia, China, Turkey, you name it. His influence can be felt all around the world because he multiplies his influence, his activity through his demons. His demons multiply his activity by combining their resources and their thousands of years of experience to spread his works, to do his deeds. And Satan is the mastermind behind it all. That is why in Scripture he is called the prince of demons, 
the God of this age, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He's the thrust behind it all, the source behind it all. He is the commander and primary warrior in the army of evil against us. Beloved, we're in a battle. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it isn't real. I'm afraid we fail to realize this because we live in such a beautiful area of the world. It's so easy to become complacent and apathetic and kick back to enjoy the lifestyle of this area, the beauty of this area and all that it has to offer. But over and over again, God says, Christian, wake up. You're in a battle. You are in a war. That is what is behind Peter's words at the end of his letter. Now let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 5 and consider that text together. 1 Peter chapter 5. In the first four verses of this chapter, Peter has been addressing spiritual leaders or elders, as we saw last Lord's Day in some detail. Now Peter broadens his scope to address everyone in the congregation. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The first key component for this formula for victory is humility. This is the foundation. This, this is the starting point. That is why Jesus began his immortal Sermon on the Mount with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility is foundational to the Christian life because for one thing, it's impossible even to become a Christian without humbling ourselves before the Lord. And once we have humbled ourselves before Him to receive forgiveness and salvation and new life, it's vital that we maintain an attitude of humility always. Here, Peter tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. That's a very picturesque phrase. Clothe yourself with humility. Wrap yourself in it and take it with you wherever you go. That's what we are supposed to do with humility. And then Peter tells us why. He says at the last part of the verse, For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is a quote from the Septuagint translation of Proverbs 3.34. Remember the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And here Peter quotes from the Septuagint out of Proverbs 3.34. James also quotes this same verse in chapter 4, verse 6 of his letter. It is actually a summation of several passages in Scripture because it is an axiomatic or axiomatic statement. It's a, a maxim in life, a truism in life. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This truth is stated in Job twenty-two twenty-nine. Psalm 138.6, Matthew 23.12, James 4.6, and here in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. 
It is such an important truth, such a foundational truth, that it is said many times and in several different ways throughout Scripture. So it's a truth that God doesn't want us to miss. It's a truth that God wants to make sure we understand and that we hear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Since that is true, Peter gives us an application in the next verse, verse 6. He says, therefore, in light of this truth, in light of this reality, in light of this axiomatic, uh, realistic realism, statement of realism, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Beloved, this is what we are to do when we are walking through various trials. Instead of fighting the sovereign hand of God when he brings us through trials, instead of resisting the sovereign hand of God when he brings us through tests in life, we are to humble ourselves before him and accept what he allows. God will lift up his suffering, submissive child in his perfect timing. So we are to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. This phrase or this this picture comes out of many Old Testament passages which describe the power of God that is able to accomplish his good purposes. God is at work. God is at work in our lives. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you belong to God through faith in his son Jesus Christ, God is at work in your life. He is at work in your trials. He is at work in your pain. God is at work, so we should humble ourselves before him in patience and trust his timing. That's what Peter says to us here. However, this does not mean that we merely grit our teeth and pine away in some kind of stoic resolve. The fact that God allows us to go through difficult and sometimes long-term trials doesn't mean that he is uncaring. It doesn't mean that he is mean. It doesn't mean that he is cruel. Don't you dare believe that lie from the enemy, or you will end up turning from the Lord or drifting from the Lord. God cares, and therefore we should turn to him in our pain, turn to him in our confusion, turn to him in our discouragement, and that is exactly what Peter says in the very next verse. In verse 7, he says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. It's very likely that Peter had that verse in the back of his mind when he wrote this statement here in verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The last phrase in this verse could be translated this way. It matters to him about you. I love that wording. It matters to him about you. The reason why I like that wording is because I know how a lot of us think when we are going through difficult trials. We begin to think that God doesn't care. We begin to think that it really doesn't matter to God. 
In fact, I've had many people say to me things like this through the years. Almost direct quote. Pastor, with all that God has going on in this universe, with all that God has going on in this world, do my problems really matter to him? Here is the answer. It matters to him about you. He cares. So cast all your anxiety on him. The word cast here in this verse could be translated throw. Throw all of your cares, your anxieties, your pain, your suffering, your discouragement, your confusion on the Lord because he cares. Trust him. He knows what he is doing in your life. Submit to him and to your spiritual leaders, verse 5. Humble yourself before God, verse 6. And trust him, verse 7. That is the formula for victory. And we need that formula for victory because when we are going through trials, let me tell you something, our enemy comes after us full force. That's why Peter adds the next verse, verse 8. Be sober. Now, all the translations are, render this differently, so yours may read a little bit differently. Be self-controlled. Be vigilant. That is, watchful. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This verse is true in isolation. But it is especially true in its context. Satan is always looking for ways to trip us up, Satan is always looking for ways to defeat us or to get a foothold in our lives. He knows us well because he has watched us for all of our lives. He watched you grow up. He watched me grow up. Maybe not him personally, one of his demons, some of his demons. They have a long, they have a long list of observations about you and about me. They know us. Satan knows us well. He knows our strengths. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our vulnerable points. He knows our tendencies. And he knows that we are often much more vulnerable when we are going through trials. So it's no accident that Peter put this statement in this context. He tells us to be sober. Peter is speaking metaphorically here, obviously. It goes without saying that we shouldn't be drunk. But Peter is saying more than that. He is saying that we ought to be awake. We ought to be alert. We ought to be sharp spiritually. When a person is physically drunk, he is lethargic, sluggish, not self-controlled, maybe even dormant. It's possible to be that way spiritually as well. That's why Peter gives this exhortation. We need to make sure that we are spiritually sober. That means we are spiritually alert. We're spiritually sharp. We're spiritually discerning. Spiritually aware. It means we know what is important in life. And we know what needs to be done to keep those things as priorities. Which means we have discipline and self-control. In fact, the NIV translates this verb, be self-controlled. That's certainly part of what is involved in this exhortation to be sober. It means that we need to take this stuff seriously. As we saw earlier from Ephesians 6, we are in a war 
And there are serious ramifications. We need to be serious about not giving our enemy a foothold in our lives at any time, but especially that is the case when we're going through trials. When we go through difficult trials, when we go through extended trials, when we go through painful or long-term trials, it's easy for us to get discouraged and begin doubting God. Or we end up becoming impatient with God. We wonder why it appears that He doesn't care. We wonder why it appears that He's not doing anything. Those kinds of thoughts can easily lead us into a downward spiritual spiral which is why Peter says we ought to be sober. We ought to be alert. We ought to be aware. He also says, in basically a synonym, the next word, he says we need to be vigilant. That's basically saying the same thing another way. We need to be on guard. We need to be alert and watchful because it is a fact that our adversary is looking for any way to get victories in our lives. It's interesting to note that these two exhortations from Peter are the very things he did not do in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before our Lord was killed. It's exactly what he did not do. And you better believe he was aware of that as he wrote these these words. He did not take seriously our Lord's warning to him, and he didn't stay alert. As a result, he failed miserably on that night by, one, trying to kill a man named Malchus, tried to cut off his head and got his ear, and he failed by denying the Lord repeatedly, calling down curses on his head. I'm sure Peter never forgot those events. Satan had a major victory in his life, and he didn't want to see that kind of thing happen in the lives of those to whom he wrote this letter. That's why he wrote verse 8. And notice that when Peter refers to our enemy here in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Notice that he refers to or compares our enemy to a ferocious lion. There are probably just a few people in this room who have actually heard a lion roar live and in person. I heard it once at at the Portland Zoo years ago. My family and I were standing at a railing looking at a, a, a large male lion in his environment across the moat that separated us. We looked and observed and commented on how large and how powerful. And after a while, we walked away. And before we had made it 20 feet away, the lion roared. I tell you that it felt like the ground was shaking beneath our feet. I had no idea they were that loud. No idea. It was a vivid reminder of just how powerful and ferocious they really are. That's the comparison that Peter makes here. He reminds us that our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is is potent imagery. Powerful imagery. Satan wants to devour us. If we belong to Christ, he knows he can't do anything to change our eternal destiny. He can't affect that. He can't change that. 
but he wants to cause as much damage in our lives as he can here in this life. He wants to make us spiritual washouts so that we have no testimony for Christ, no impact for Christ. We don't touch anyone else's life for Christ. He wants to draw us away from an intimate walk with Christ or push us away from an intimate walk with Christ so we'll be fruitless. Hey, if he can't change our eternal destiny, at least he wants to impact us in this life so that we don't touch anyone else. He wants to devour us. So Peter adds the next verse, verse 9. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Notice from this verse, because it's the same in so many other verses throughout the New Testament, notice that we don't have to go after Satan, as many Christians would tell us today. The idea that we are supposed to talk to Satan, rebuke Satan, bind Satan, or attack Satan is completely unbiblical. Yet that kind of teaching is rampant in Christianity. And very few people even stop to analyze if it's accurate or biblical. Satan comes after us, beloved. We don't go after him. He comes after us. And our job is to resist him, Peter says. And be steadfast in the faith. This begs the question, how can we resist him? We're told here to resist him. How? The answer is twofold. The first part of the answer comes from what Peter has already told us earlier. In verses 5, 6, 7, 8. Submit to God and your spiritual leaders. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Trust Him by casting all your anxiety on Him. That is the formula for victory, or at least part of the formula for victory. And secondly, Peter says here in this verse... To resist our enemy steadfast in the faith. That's the key phrase here in verse 9. The In the faith. The phrase, the faith, with a definite article, when used in the New Testament, the faith is a reference to the body of revealed truth in Scripture. It is not talking about subjective faith, your faith, my faith, anyone else's faith. It is talking about objective faith, truth, doctrine, Scripture. So verse 9 is key. We resist our enemy enemy by staying strong in Scripture. That is also part of the formula for victory. And maybe I could add one more point from the end of verse 9 here. A key thought in giving us victory. Remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Remember that you're not alone. Now when I say that, Please understand, I'm not just talking about the fact that the Lord is with you and the Lord is with me. Certainly that is true. But that's not the point that Peter makes at the end of this verse. He reminds us that we are not alone in the sense that our brothers and sisters in Christ are in this same battle with us. We're all in the battle. And we all go through times of trial. We all go through times of pain and heartache and difficulty. We're not alone. We're all on the same team. And it is certain that we will have ultimate victory. Our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, has made sure that we will have ultimate victory. 
And these verses tell us how to have victory along the way here in this life. Submit to God and to your spiritual leaders, verse 5. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, verse 6. Trust Him by casting all your anxiety on Him, verse 7. Be sober and vigilant. Be alert for your enemy, verse 8. Stay strong in the faith. Stay strong in the Word of God, verse 9. Beloved, that's the formula for victory. That's it. Nothing could be more practical than this text of Scripture to tell us how to be strong, how to win, how to have victory in this life. I pray we will take seriously, seriously, our Lord's instructions to us in this passage. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head and close your eyes in the few minutes we have remaining, I really encourage you to think about what you have seen and heard from God's Word this morning. It's so important that we realize that we are in a battle. Because if we don't realize we're in a battle, if we don't have a wartime mentality, then you could, you could almost say there's a sense in which we've already given a lot of foothold, a lot of room to the enemy. Because if we don't realize we're in a battle, we could be very nonchalant about the Christian life. Okay, say ra, say ra. Just, just kind of float along in life, go along without any intensity, without any passion, without any realization. And Satan would love that. He would love for us just to sort of be mediocre, even if he doesn't get us involved in sin and rebellion, just to neutralize us. Just to neutralize us so we, we don't really make an impact on anyone around us. We don't touch anyone else's life. We don't impact anyone for eternity. That's fine with Satan. If he can't change our eternal destiny, then at least he wants to render us useless, ineffective, fruitless. So look at your life and ask yourself the honest question. Do I, do I live my Christian life with a wartime mentality? Do I, do I really grab hold of the fact that I'm in a battle? Do I take this seriously? And do I do what the Holy Spirit says through Peter here in this, in this passage, this practical passage outlining a victory formula for us? Submit to God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Trust Him by casting all your anxiety upon Him. Be sober, be vigilant, be alert for your enemy who's looking for a foothold in your life. Stay strong in the faith. Stay strong in the Word of God. Is that the way you're approaching the Christian life? Honestly. Is that the way you're living? That's the way we're called to live. And I would say this in closing. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, you really can't have spiritual victory in this life. Oh, maybe you can have success in other areas, educationally, financially, business, relationally. But you can't have spiritual victory in this life apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you don't know him, or if there's any doubt in your mind, I urge you to settle that issue this moment. Right there in your own, in the quietness of your own heart where you're seated, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life 
to forgive you of your sins, to change you, to grant you his salvation, to begin making you into a new man or woman. And you don't have to say it that way. Just however the Spirit of God has stirred your heart, express that to the Lord and yield your life to him today. Come to know him and begin following him. Father, thank you for how practical your word is to us to look at this passage we've considered this morning and see this uh, game plan for victory, this game plan for, for the way we should live our Christian lives. It's so, it's so clear. It's just so straightforward to us. And most of these concepts aren't new to us, but they're profound in that they outline for us the way you tell us to live, the way we ought to live. So may we heed very carefully and hear very carefully what you have said and take seriously the fact that we're in a battle so that we don't allow our enemy to devour us or defeat us or neutralize us or render us useless and ineffective. We want our lives to count for Christ. We want our lives to count for eternity. And so we would pray for anyone here in our midst this morning who doesn't know Christ personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman or young person, whoever it is, to come to know him today and to begin living for him in whose name we pray. Amen.